Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benediva. Our guest today is Doey Francis. He is one of the most interesting and outspoken members of the venture capital industry. He has been writing the very first check at several early stage fintech companies for over 10 years, and he is the founder and managing partner of Group 11. Today, we're going to talk about how fintech of all industries is hitting an inflection point and common threads between the various unicorn founders that Dovey has invested in. We'll also discuss Dovey's very unique experience being featured on, yes, the Israeli Shark Tank, and selling several units of his own venture capital firm on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. And with that, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Dovey Francis, Group 11. Hey, Dovey, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcasts. Where are you calling in from today? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. There you go. Beverly Hills, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, absolutely correct. <laughs> there you go. So I guess for the sake of our listeners, let's start with a bit about your background and your journey into fintech. Great. So I'm Israeli, as you can tell by the accent. <laughs> uh, immigrated to the America 16 years ago to pursue my uh, master's degree at UCL Anderson, then went to work for Deutsche Bank. Back then, the dream of most of us, my generation, was to be a banker or a consultant. So I was a banker. Then ran a family office for a couple of years and ultimately got into venture capital by accident. My best friend, who was my roommate in college back in Israel, at Ben-Gurion University, back in the days, uh, went to Stanford, got accepted uh, to work with Eric Schmidt, uh, Google's former chairman, as his right-hand man. And uh, a couple of months into it, they started to get a fund called Innovation Endeavors. Uh, and I, you know, when my friend told me about it, I was utterly jealous. I thought that's really a super cool thing to do. And I started experimenting with uh, venture capital investing starting in 2011. Uh, you know, 2011, people were still leaking their wounds after the financial crisis, uh, the GFC of 2008. Uh, so you didn't see too many family offices and too many venture capitalists, frankly, in Silicon Valley. You didn't see Ashton Kutcher and Lady Gaga hopping around in Silicon Valley signing checks, right? So different time, lots of fear still in the market. So perfect opportunity to start learning how to invest in venture capital. I still consider myself a student of the profession to this very day. Uh, 12 years later. And uh, yeah, started uh, started making investments alongside them at first. They introduced me to a bunch of their good friends, uh, Joe Lonsdale, Peter Thiel, Raul, uh, and Yuri with DST, Oren Zaev, to name a few. Started collaborating with them, investing alongside them with one idea in mind, just to learn how to underwrite transactions. How did they look at markets? How do they look at deals? What type of SWOT analysis they do? What do they find interesting? What sectors in technology in particular and, and what have you? And um, a couple of years into doing this, uh, two things were clear to me. One thing was that my true professional calling was to be a venture capitalist, which is quite a realization when you're in your mid-30s. And, uh, and the second thing was that financial technology as an asset class, now listen, we're talking about 2013. The, the term fintech was not even coined, but financial technology as an asset class I thought was just super interesting to double click on and to hone in on. And I made the decision to leave the family office and focus full time on venture capital investing, number one. And number two, to focus uh, on financial technology with emphasis on what I call enterprise financial technology. So, so financial technology oriented companies that help the enterprise become far more efficient and anti-fragile. So that's my story in a nutshell. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think that's uh, it's a really interesting journey, especially especially into fintech. And I think, as I mentioned earlier about Group 11, you guys do a lot of early stage investing. So 
I think it'd be personally very interesting to hear how how fintech in your mind, especially when you're thinking about early stage, how has that changed from let's call it 2013 before that was even a term to now today, and how do you see it going forward? Well, well, let's start with how it was in 2000 and uh, roughly 2012 when I started investing in financial technology. Well, the term was not even coined. We know that for sure. But when you look at cycles of innovation, typically the disruption you see is, is uh, you know, I call it the path of least resistance. The things we saw at first are the things that were easy to disrupt. So in 2009, the CARD Act was enacted by the government. So you saw lots of lending startups that have emerged at that time, uh, lending clubs, SoFi, and what have you. So that, I think that was the first cycle of innovation that we have seen. So that was before FinTech uh, started sending its uh, tentacles to uh, to different uh, swath uh, of uh, of various other industries. Uh, over time, there has been an evolution. We started seeing companies that are starting to transition uh, to transform other areas of the enterprise. And and um, I think where we are today, as it pertains to financial services, which was kind of like the first industry to be disrupted. I think we're seeing around 10% penetration of financial technology into financial services. So let's let's double click on that for a second. Financial services, about 7% of our, of our uh, gross domestic product, em- employing about 10 million people in the Americas alone, that's banks, that's insurance companies, endowments, foundations, RIAs, and what have you, that, that universe. And, and in that, in, through those lenses, we have seen a bunch of companies that have emerged trying to solve various issues that the financial services has. Uh, it, it can be online RIAs. It can be financial reporting software solutions like, like uh, Adapar, for example, and what have you. Those have grown in scale uh, over the past few years tremendously. And what we're seeing today, if financial technology was less than 1% penetration back in 2012, we're at around 10% penetration today. How do I calculate penetration? Not based on revenue. I do it based on enterprise value. I take the cumulative enterprise value of all financial technology startups that are privately held. Then I take financial technology companies that are publicly uh, uh, held. I combine them together and I get to an amount. The amount is $1.5 trillion globally, okay, in terms of cumulative uh, enterprise value. Then I look at the global enterprise value of the financial services industry, and that's $15 trillion. So here we are, right? That's kind of like where we are today. I'm talking globally. I'm not just talking about the Americas. So 10% penetration. You know, you're in business school, so you're probably reading other case studies like the Harvard uh, case studies that we used to read uh, back. We, and also, we don't read those at Wharton. Uh, yeah, 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 I know. I know. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah. Wharton is a, is a very good school, and we read also Wharton case studies uh, at UC Anderson. I agree with that. So, so you surely remember the Netflix case study, right? Like the Blockbuster case study. So at what, at what point did Blockbuster lose the market? What was the tipping point? The tipping point is around 15% penetration, somewhere there. So we're very, very close to it here, uh, here globally in, in financial technology that disrupts traditional financial services. So that's one thing that we've seen, right? But the other opportunity, let the siren pass for a second. The other opportunity that we've seen is horizontal is in nature. Those are financial technology companies that become platforms. And those platforms solve various significant pains for other enterprises across variety of industries. So, so I think if you, if you look at the cycles of innovation, this is the second and the third cycle. We're seeing, we're seeing fintech starting to spread into other, into other industries through horizontal platforms like Tipalti, that is an accounts payable software solution that solves pains for many enterprises, middle market and large enterprises uh, globally, 
that have nothing to do necessarily with traditional financial services. Uh, we're seeing that with trip actions, uh, which is an expense management and corporate travel solution that has more than 10,000 customers globally that do various other things uh, that are not necessarily related to financial services and so on and so forth. So based on what you're talking about, it sounds like we're you're almost expecting a bit of an inflection point now, let's say from the 10% penetration to once we hit the 15, 20%, where fintech almost becomes more of the default rather than otherwise. So as you're thinking as a seed round, as a seed investor, as someone who invests in early stage companies, how do you think about attacking that wave or, or riding this wave and what subsectors or what companies in particular really excite you? Yeah. So I don't consider myself a wave rider. That's my wife. She's a surfer. I'm a terrible surfer. But uh, but I will say that uh, I, I I consider myself an enabler, a conduit of capital and an enabler of, of founders who build global platforms that disrupt massive markets. So that's kind of like how I would like to view myself. Uh, because a wave rider, it means that the, you know, you're riding on a power of waves that uh, you have nothing to do with. Uh, I think I have a lot to do. Uh, with the power that is being unleashed by my founders and portfolio companies. Uh, I, I do view it as a partnership that has to be a win-win. We have to add tremendous value to the portfolio company in order for the portfolio company to do what it was meant to be doing and disrupt markets. Uh, so now to your question. Look, financial technology is, is now everywhere. It's not confined only to traditional financial services. And I've given you the Tipalti and Trip Actions uh, as an example, but I can give you many other, uh, many other uh, uh, examples from our portfolio of now 17 companies where we have significant exposure. We are indeed, as you mentioned, typically the first check. We try to buy as much as we can upfront, typically 15 to 25% of the company, take a board seat and continue to buy to the extent we can in the future, which is quite, you know, unusual, let's say for most VCs. Uh, we continue to participate all, all the way towards an IPO to the extent we believe there is five to 10x to go. We'll keep buying more. And we'll even do it cross funds, uh, which is also pretty, pretty uncommon. So that's kind of like that. You wanted examples. Uh, uh, I've given you Tipalti and, uh, and uh, Trip Actions as an example, but I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples that, um, that are kind of recent. A uh, master school, for an example. Well, it's an education platform that, uh, that enables, uh, people who do not have engineering background at this stage. Uh, to go through a pretty elaborate uh, process from screening all the way, all the way to employment, screening education and employment. Uh, but it's a success based system. So basically we finance the students. Uh, we, we basically pay the tuition on their behalf and they pay us once they, uh, once they get a job. Okay. Once they're placed into a high paying job as an engineer. Well, that helps us solve uh, a huge problem in an industry that is around 8% of our gross domestic product, the education industry, right? Home to about 49 million students in the Americas alone. If you look at the shortcomings of the education industry, uh, the syllabus is oftentimes outdated. I'm not talking about Wharton. I'm just talking generally, but the <laughs> syllabus is oftentimes outdated. The professors, you know, they, they're in the academia. They don't work, they don't work uh, in tech companies, et cetera. Uh, so maybe some of their knowledge is not quite recent as to what are the most uh, interesting trends uh, uh, in uh, software engineering, let's say. Uh, it's very costly. The alternative cost associated with like taking four years out of, uh, out of life to study and obtain a degree is very, very high. It's very costly. Most people cannot afford it, right? 50% 50, 50 of the Americas cannot afford $1,500 expense. So definitely cannot afford 
uh, obtaining a significant uh, education and paying a, a high tuition. And lastly, we just don't have enough students. Uh, we don't have enough students because of some demographic changes that are taking place uh, in our economy as well. But we can talk about it a little bit later. So the bottom line is we, we need to think about education differently and, and to help people obtain education and harness the power of financial technology to accommodate that, in this case, through success-based uh, learning. Um, give you an interesting statistic, which I find staggering. The US, uh, uh, the US uh, census states that by 2026, we'll be short 1.2 million engineers. Well, that's, that's insane. Think, think about it. How do we train 1.2 million engineers where the, where the education system in the Americas can train only about 450,000 engineers per, annual, per, per year? So, so the answer is that we, are, uh, we, we, we will need to figure out a way to harness the power of technology, even into industries like the health industry, like the education industry, like the real estate industry, industries that were yet to be disrupted uh, uh, and, and are still very much outdated. Yeah, I love that. I love that harnessing the power of financial technology. It's definitely something something we all connect with, uh, especially in more in fintech. Um, so I guess the next question I would have is is around since since you do write the first check most of the time, how do you evaluate that decision, and what are some common threads of success that you've seen in your big successes, let's say, for whether it's Papaya Global or Trip Actions or Tipaldi, yeah. you've obviously had a lot of big successes. So what, what seems to track across all those investments and whether it's team or go-to-market or early product? Okay. Well, it's such, a, it's such a unique question. So let me try to answer it. First and foremost, you gave me a compliment. So, so <laughs> I, 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 we live in an industry of lots of storytellers, okay? And there are 4,000 venture capitalists out there. 1,400 of us joined in the last two years. All right? There are too many of wow. us. Okay. We'll talk about that in a second. All right. So there are too many venture companies. Lots of us raised lots of money because in a low interest rate environment, everybody looked like a hero for quite some time. And there are 1,200 unicorns, cumulative value of $3.8 trillion. And I was calling it a bubble in 2019 when we had about 400 unicorns with a cumulative value of $1 trillion. So this is, this is, uh, <laughs> this is a bubble to the power of two. And the bubble to the power of two also creates uh, a narrative around many venture capitalists that they are successful when they're not. How do you measure success in a market that is inflated? I think that's question number one. And question number two, uh, what's your hit rate, right? So you can look very successful and you have, let's say you were spraying and praying, you have 30 portfolio companies and you hit it big with one or two, but those are not real unicorns. They're alicorns, they're fake unicorns. Well, you know, so you need to ask me first, to determine whether I'm successful or not, what's your hit rate? How many category-defining companies have you invested in? And then we need to look for the companies with a fine-tooth comb and figure out whether they're real or not, okay? So we have invested in 17 companies where we have significant exposure, and many of them in the last 36, uh, 36 months. And of those 17 uh, companies, uh, six companies have emerged as category-defining companies, including Tipalti, including Sunbeat, including Homelight, including Trip Actions, including Next Insurance, and including Papaya Global, which is successful, but it's more of a tactical exposure for us, um, meaning that we own only 3%. So that's just kind of like to, to put things in context. Always ask about the hit rate when trying to figure out whether somebody is really successful or is just a good storyteller. With respect to how we analyze, uh, how we find successful companies. Look, I, I think you need to be directionally correct and you need to be technically correct. So directionally correct, you need to find right markets that are right for disruption. 
And you need to make sure that the company that you're investing in solves a big problem in those big markets. Otherwise, you, even if you do very, very well, you won't be able uh, to build significant enterprise value. So it needs to be a big problem. You know, so for example, you know, point of sale financing for small businesses. Big problem, no solutions, no technological solutions up until something came about. We're the first check there, obviously. Uh, and we enable you know, uh, many, many enterprises throughout the Americas to allow their customers to, uh, to, sh to buy what I call essential services. Accounts payable, that, well, that's a big problem. No, no big solution for middle market uh, enterprise software companies, about, about 400,000 of them in the Americas uh, before Tipalti came about. Corporate travel expense management, big problem. Only, only like entrenched incumbents before trip actions came about, companies that uh, lie on technology stacks from 30 years ago, like Concur, that was sold to SAP, and so on and so forth. So big problems in big markets that, you know, that's the first thing that you need to uh, figure out. Secondly, enterprise software and not business to consumer. 90 something percent of our investments are enterprise software facing and not business to consumer. And why is that? Well, because it's sticky. Enterprises have loyalty. If you solve a big problem for them, they stick around. So the churn is low, net dollar retention is high, they keep growing with you, they're loyal, they appreciate you. You help them turn into anti-fragile in this economy that became rather chaotic in the past, in the past couple of years. And going into 2030, we have a long uh, thesis around that. Going into 2030, uh, the era of uh, the era of chaos is upon us, and technology will help companies become anti-fragile. So you need to be uh, enterprise software facing. I think it's really, really important. Business to consumer, not our thing. And I'm not dissing other business to consumer investors, but let's agree that the, the, the individual consumer is not nearly as loyal as the enterprise, number one. And number two, because there are limited channels of distribution uh, for marketing doors in business to consumer, you know, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, the cost of acquisition goes up, especially as you narrow down on things like neo banking, et cetera. And the lifetime value goes down. Uh, it's a price war, essentially. So I'm uh, not my thing. Okay. So, so that's the third thing. The third thing is you need to you need to focus on a certain segment. I think uh, enterprise uh, enterprise software solutions is, is is big, and there's lots of room for improvement there. Then you need to look at the the founders and the C-suite team that you're investing in. We prefer people that are outsiders to the problem. So oftentimes you just find you know. In certain industries, maybe you want to find people that are insiders to the problem, but in most industries, you prefer people who are innocent or not familiar with things and think about things completely differently. Corporate travel is a good example. Ariel Cohen, Elon Twig had nothing to do, had nothing to do uh, with, uh, with corporate travel. Uh, Drew Uhr, uh, the founder of Homelight, had nothing to do with real estate. They were outsiders to the problem who identified a big opportunity. So I think that the founders, uh, choosing the right founders is super important as well. Then you have to be correct technically, right? What valuation are we buying? Are we buying enough of the company? What type of terms we're putting? Who else is joining us uh, in the ride? How do we add value to the company? Can we add value to the company? Because if not, I'm not interested and so on and so forth. So hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm actually curious to hear about, you know, that's, that's a pretty different take around uh, outsider founders because typically you hear like, the founder needs to have founder market fit, right? So how do you how do you go about first of all where did that come from like where did where did that idea come from and uh, how do you go about supporting a founder that might be on the outside of an industry Yeah I mean I don't think the idea came from anywhere it's just uh, it's kind of like baptism by fire meaning that it's an observation it's not an idea 
Uh, after doing this for over a decade, uh, you start noticing uh, kind of like similar, uh, similar attributes in companies that become category defining. And definitely, I would say that one of them is having a founder who is an outsider to the problem. Wow, that's very interesting. And, and how, do you, how do you go about supporting a founder, let's say, on the outside? Do, do you have a different take in terms of supporting that founder versus a founder who has deep industry expertise or is it more or less the same? Yeah, you know, uh, I think it's more or less the same. Ultimately, let's take, for example, a uh, point of self-financing. So we, we, we were the lead investor in, in Sunbeat. We actually not only in, led the seed, also led the Series D recently, which was at the $1.1 billion valuation, inducting them into the Unicorns Club. Remember, I said I keep buying more, but sometimes I keep leading uh, as well. And uh, Sunbeat today has more than a million customers. And uh, uh, I cannot disclose revenue, but significant revenue as well and growing really, really fast. Well, Arad Levertov was an insider to the problem. He worked at Anova before as the chief operating officer, so he comes from that business. In that particular business, you really need to understand lending. You need you need to understand capital capital markets. You need to figure out how to create a good arbitrage between the debt you're borrowing, the debt you're extending, how to keep low default rate, and so on and so forth. So, in that case, it was important to invest in somebody who knows who knows or understands their business. In corporate travel, I prefer to have somebody who who is not uh, who is not overly familiar with uh, the, the terrible experience that customers used to have in, in corporate travel back in the days before trip actions came about. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Okay, so I guess for my next round of questions, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your connection to Israel. So as many of our listeners probably don't know, you're actually on the Israeli shark tank. It's called Hakrishim or the Sharks. Yeah. Uh, I personally love watching and watching uh, Dovi uh, you know, run the show there. So how did you end up getting involved with that? How did that come about? You know, nobody ever asked me, so I'll tell you. No, for real. <laughs> professional a Warren, Warren FinTech exclusive. Yeah, no, no. It, it isn't <laughs> so I'll tell you what happened. This is like, I'm taking you back to 2018. I was not nearly as wealthy or as successful as I am today. And Group 11 was way smaller. Okay. We're still, you know, we're raising back then $50 million. Fundraising was really tough. It took, I think, two years to raise fund number two and a year and a half to raise fund number three. And I knew that we were right directionally, but people probably wanted to see that we can execute technically as well, right? So I was visiting Israel with my wife, and we were renting an apartment in, in Tel Aviv, in Samaret, okay? And uh, the, the broker, I didn't know the broker, very nice guy, I was talking, told him about America. And I don't know why I mentioned Shark Tank, really, when we were talking, because he asked me about TV shows in America, and I told him I like to watch Shark Tank a lot. Uh, in fact, throughout my business school, when I was running at the gym and I was running long distances, I used to kind of like watch it and get inspired uh, while on the treadmill. So he said, oh, you know that, uh, he said, my, my friend is a producer of Shark Tank in Israel. I said, what, there, is there Shark Tank in Israel? He said, well, they just bought the rights from Sony and it's going to be on prime time on, uh, on Keshet, Israel's largest uh, TV network. Uh, he said, and he said to me, do you want me to introduce you to the producer? I said, yeah, sure. I'm happy to meet. So I had a few interviews and, and literally auditions, uh, on-camera auditions uh, while I was in Israel. And they elected me to be one of the five uh, sharks. And I've been doing it now going into the fourth season. And it's, uh, you know, it's primetime TV, about uh, 16% of all, 15 to 16% of all Israeli households watch us on average. And I, I feel very good about educating the next generation of investors in Israel and giving people the hope that anybody, especially somebody who comes from a humble background like myself, uh, can, can do well eventually if they work hard. So, so that's how things came about. And, and, and 
if you ask me why I did Shark Tank, which, which I think is a fair question to ask as well, because most venture capitalists will never think about doing something like this. I would say it's because I believe that venture capital is an industry that is also ripe for disruption. And I consider myself and my team at Group 11 part of the forces that bring this disruption about. Venture capital has always been quite secluded uh, industry. Uh, most of the venture capitalists that I know have grown within, within, the, within their firms. They started as an associate, analyst, associate, senior associate, partner, general partner. Uh, and um, I would say that uh, you know, my background is non-traditional. I came into the, the venture capital industry uh, completely from left field. It, it was important for me to turn, and to this very day it is, to bring transparency into the industry. Uh, so I, I like to share how I make decisions and how I think about things. I like to share my returns. All of our returns are public to see. I don't know if you read the Business Insider article where I actually literally gave them the returns, the audited books, and let them publish it. Uh, and I think the venture capital industry is bound to change. And some of the things that, 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 that I've done in, in order to uh, effectuate that change is to report our, our returns publicly. I even, I've taken the fund public uh, in Israel. So, re so retail investors can invest into the fund, which I think is quite unique. Nobody's done it before. I know yeah, that, was my, that was my next question. And the Shark Tank is just another component in, in bringing transparency, right? Somebody from the venture capital industry who's doing well for, for, for their uh, investors and stakeholders comes and shares the, the, the secrets of the trade uh, on, on national TV, I think that's really, really cool. And uh, I hope uh, more people will, will do that. And my, my, my fundamental belief is that venture capital is going to radically change over the next eight years, going into 2030. And uh, we, we will see a lot, a lot of changes taking place, starting with uh, the number of venture capital firms shrinking meaningfully, uh, seeing some, I think, some changes also with how regulators view venture capital and what will be required to disclose. Uh, there were too many charlatans in the industry, and hopefully that will change. And hopefully institutional money <clears throat> will follow into the right uh, venture capital firms. I will say something about institutional money that will shock you and your listeners for sure. And then we'll talk about uh, the stock exchange. Let, I'll ask you a question. Okay, The venture capital industry in its size is about $900 billion in assets under management. Okay, Not the value of the book, just the money was given to venture capitalists. I told you there are about 4,000 of us, 1,400 of us joined the last few years. If I asked you what percentage of the firms hold 70% of assets under management, 70, 70, okay. just so my accent is clear, what would you say? What per, which percentage of firms hold 70% of the AUM? Yeah. 5%? Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Wow. 27 firms hold 70% of the assets out of wow. 4,000 firms. So, of course, that has to change because then what, what's, the, what's, what's the outcome of that? Uh, you get bigger and bigger funds in the billions. Uh, all of a sudden, you start seeing like crypto funds coming from traditional firms that, that manage billions. And, you know, the fund is like a $2 billion crypto fund. And you have to invest as well if you want to get into the main fund and so on and so forth. That is going to change radically. And I think middle, you know, I call us kind of like middle market managers, right? Not behemoth companies. Uh, we manage today... $1.6 billion in cumulative value of assets and $610 million in assets under management. Middle market managers like us uh, uh, will start getting the attention of institutional investors who, who would want kind of like to diversify the risk uh, away from these massive companies. Uh, so I think that's one thing we'll see. And the other thing we'll see, small managers who raise only one fund, two funds will not likely survive uh, in this environment going into the end of the decade. So that's that. 
Now I'm happy to answer. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy to answer the stock exchange thing. Yeah. So how, how was that? So I guess explain to listeners a bit about what the process was, um, what exactly you guys did, and yeah. why. Well, without getting too technical, in 2000, uh, the end of 2019, was it? Uh, no, it was 2020. The end of 2020. I was thinking about raising uh, the next fund, and um, most of my investors are are American at that time. Uh, family offices, RIAs, not yet big endowments and foundations. Uh, that's a muscle that we still need to learn how to flex here in the Americas, but we're, we'll, we'll get there. Performance will get us there. But um, I, w- I w- so I was thinking, you know, look, 70% of our investments go to what I call Israeli-related technology companies. So these are companies that were founded by Israelis like myself who reside in the Americas and maintain the R&D centers in Israel because we have an, an exquisite talent pool in Israel of engineers, right? And they're not nearly as costly as well. And um, I always felt a little bit frustrated that Israeli institutional investors never um, never noticed us. And one day I get a phone call from the Israeli Stock Exchange, from the CEO of the Israeli Stock Exchange. And uh, Itai Ben-Zev, and, and Itai tells me, uh, listen, Dovi, we've been running an analysis of managers that we like, that are middle market managers, you know, uh, that are you know, growing in scale. Uh, we've done some research on you. We really like you. We really like your portfolio company choices. And we would want you to be the first fund manager to ever list on the Israeli stock exchange. And, uh, and the way it's listed, it's a public security, but I'm not required as a public security to disclose the underlying performance of the portfolio companies, but rather only my performance as a fund in the fund level. I, so I disclose what I invested in, when I invested in, how much I invested in, how it's been doing from a price per share perspective appreciation, but I don't share the fundamental unit, the fundamental uh, economic performance of the companies themselves, which is really important, right? Because it's it will be unfair to them. Um, and I said, uh, "Oh, this is a unique idea. It's crazy enough to work." And within five minutes, I made a decision to give it a shot. So I flown to Israel. I met with the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. My team, my team and I built the data room uh, and uh, uh, and the materials, and we started the roadshow process with Israeli institutional investors. And we met with Migdal Insurance, Achshara Insurance, More Investment House, Menorah, RL, the largest, um, the largest um, institutional investors in Israel. And much to my surprise, they really liked the idea of having the ability to buy membership units in the fund, which they've done even if they would have done even if the fund was not publicly traded, but then take the membership units and put them on a stock exchange if they wanted to trade them. So they liked the idea of having the option to turn the units into publicly traded units and sell them or buy more if they wanted. Uh, so, so I thought that it's a unique, innovative idea. And we talked about venture capital changing. I think that's a good, it's a good direction. I like the idea of having institutional investors buying into it. L- luckily for us, not only they bought into it, we wanted to raise a hundred. We raised $200 million, actually 198 to be precise. I like that. I like that, that retail investors can buy as well. So accredited Israeli investors can buy the ticker at any given moment. We kept some float for them as well. Uh, so turning venture capital into something that's more accessible to the public, not only for uber-rich people uh, through large endowments and foundations, but allowing also the general public uh, uh, to buy as well, an asset that was secluded uh, up until then. And I thought it's a win-win-win for all uh, parties that are involved. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that take. And I guess kind of playing off that, you have also a unique perspective um, 
the fact that you're from Israel and you do have a lot of portfolio companies with Israeli founders, but you're also in LA and um, also invest in American founders as well. What would you say is the biggest difference between American and Israeli founders? Oh, wow. Uh, that, that one's of personal interest for me as someone who's yeah. toned the line between Israeli and American. Well, I have excellent American founders. Uh, you know, uh, Drew from Drew and Suman from Homelight are, are are amazing, and I think that all of the founders, Americans in Israel, share the same attributes. Uh, they they break they break walls. They're go getters. They're they're anti fragile as well, right? Not only the software companies they build. Uh, one maybe unique attribute to Israeli founders um, or foreign founders that come to the Americas, because I'm also in favor of immigration, um, which our labor force actually, frankly, needs in the Americas. Look, I think that to come here where your native tongue is not English and, and to work with colleagues that are Americans and to, and to work with customers that are Americans and to build the category defining companies requires, uh, requires a serious, uh, a serious uh, muscle. Um, I think about my journey here over the past 16 years and how difficult it has been and how many challenges I had to overcome from the language barrier and all the way to the cultural barrier. And, uh, you know, uh, coming into a room with, a, with, with, as you can tell, a foreign accent. And um, yeah, I think, I think you need to be a little bit more agile than the common person. You have a little bit more to overcome. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, last question. We tend to always ask this at, at the Wharton FinTech podcast. Uh, many of our listeners, especially these days, are interested in jobs in FinTech. So are you guys hiring or are any of your portfolio companies hiring? Yeah. So so jobs in fintech, again, jobs in enterprise fintech, which is what we do. I just want to make sure that it's clear that we're not doing business to consumer stuff uh, and definitely not crypto. And, and the answer is yes. If you go to group11.vc and you go to the jobs section there, uh, we are updating it on a daily basis. It's, it's, it's automated. Uh, I think right now we have 400 open positions. And, and by the way, don't I'm saying well, lots of people are worried about layoffs in the market. I predicted I predicted that the layoffs are going to intensify in the next in the next uh, 12, 24 months. I believe that's going to be the case. Uh, but also remember one thing: for every uh, one person that becomes unemployed, there are 1.7 open positions out there. Companies like Boeing, like Retian, uh, etc., are in dire need of strong engineers. So there's lots of opportunity in our, in our portfolio and outside of our portfolio. Fear not. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dovi, for the time. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media, or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast. Or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo.